1209, Jeff Wagner. So very glad to have you with us. Interesting next couple of hours. Let me tell you where we're going with the show. And by the way, if you want to get a head start and advance the program as to what we're going to be talking about when, you can follow me, Twitter, at Jeff Wagner 620. And I know a number of people do that. In addition, um, if you miss some of the show, you can download it on our podcast. I know a number of people subscribe to that. Just go to WTMJ.com. We make it very easy. But here's what we're going to be talking about. President Trump, uh, you know, mid-yesterday afternoon, has this sort of, it wasn't a press conference, but it was a, a statement that he put out, and you could see him saying it, um, where he, he sort of, and I say sort of, walks back some of the things that he says at the press conference. He said he misspoke, which is on one issue, but he doesn't address a number of the other things that he said that clearly troubled Republicans and Democrats alike. So we're going to be talking about that. At the same time, the flip side of that is you have a number of people who come out, and and again, it is the, the people suffering from the Trump derangement syndrome who describe this as treasonous. There are actually people who are saying that that press conference that the president held was the equivalent of of 9-11 or Pearl Harbor. I I mean, look, I I understand there's Trump haters out there, but at the same time, have we lost all sense and all touch with reality? We're going to be talking about all that probably in the second half of this hour. Um, In the one o'clock hour, we're going to be spending a bit of time on the controversy involving Milwaukee Brewers all-star pitcher Josh Hader. As I was just telling uh, Jerry Bader, I mean, I, I don't claim to know him very well. I, I have an opportunity on, on opening day to be in the dugout and to get a chance to chat with these players. And typically, before they come on the air, we have a couple minutes and we talk. I actually, I, I, I will say this at the outset. I, I like Josh Hader a lot, not just because he's a brewer, not just because he's talented. I, I, th- I thought he was an interesting young man. He is also... We kind of bonded, at least I thought we bonded a little bit, because he's from Southern Maryland, and, and my mom is from Southern Maryland. And so it, and, and I'm not saying that informs or influences some of the stuff that, that he did that, you know, was uh, somebody decided to release yesterday as he goes into the All-Star game. But, you know, we're going to discuss that in great detail coming up at 108. You know, what needs to happen here? And I will tell you, Gru, who's producing the show today, as somebody who grew up before Al Gore invented the Internet, all I can say is two words. Thank God. I mean, now, I I mean, I I was and I think, you know, everybody, if you are of a certain age, just sit back and think about the stupid things that you might have said when you were 14 and 15 and 16 and 17 years old. And I'm not talking about using the N-word necessarily, but just just think about all the, the stupid stuff that you might have said and maybe even said it to your friends. And maybe they said stupid stuff back to you, but it was just saying it to your friends. Nowadays, with social media, everybody feels compelled to say those stupid things and put it out there, and then it's out forever. Let me give you a hint as to one of the points I'm going to try to make in an hour. Um, this is a teachable moment. Any parent out there listening to this, what you need to do is you need to take this Josh Hader story, and you need to sit down with your teenager and say, look, this is what can happen. You might think you're just talking to your friend. You might think you're being clever. You might not mean any of this stuff, but you put out this stupid stuff and, you know, it's going to come back to bite you at some point in time. So maybe you really want to think before you tweet because this could, in fact, happen to you. 
We'll talk about that in great detail coming up in the next hour. And in about five or ten minutes, Marquette University starts rolling out the results of its its latest poll. I suspect they're going to be polling on the governor's race, the U.S. Senate race, and the Republican primary, and a number of other things. We'll we'll give you I'll give you some of my instant analysis as those numbers start to roll out. Again, I, I am I am a bit of a skeptic when it comes to polls. I used to be one of those guys who says that I think the Marquette University Law School poll is a gold standard. Gold standard. Well. I think, unfortunately, it suffers from the same problems that a lot of polls have. If you believe Marquette University, Russ Feingold would be in the middle of his fifth U.S. Senate term. They, they failed to pick up Ron Johnson winning both the first time and two plus years and two years ago. Um, obviously got the Trump election all wrong. Um, and I think it's not necessarily an indictment of the poll. It is an indictment of how difficult it is to poll nowadays. But I understand these are horse race numbers, and we'll be focusing on those as those come out in just a couple minutes. But first, I want to start off with a story that I I commented on yesterday, but we didn't open up the the phone lines on. I think this is about as slimy a hit job as I have seen in a while. Scott Walker and the so-called Russian spy. There is a Russian woman who has now been indicted. Um, what she did allegedly is starting in, oh, about 2015, she started beginning to try to ingratiate herself with a number of conservative politicians all across the country. Um, it's alleged that she was acting at the behest of the Russian government in an effort to try to reach out to these people and maybe influence American policy, right? And so she would be attending things like the NRA conference, national prayer breakfast, whatever, and she would look for opportunities to get introduced to and to chat up conservative politicians. 2015, as Scott Walker is exploring his presidential campaign, um, he is at the NRA convention in Tennessee. He's one of many, many speakers. He's in, he's waiting to give his speech and he's in this, you know, large room and people are coming up and they're introducing themselves to him or he's being introduced to people. It's like a giant meet and greet sort of thing happens all the time to politicians. People will come up, gee, Governor Walker, I'm so and so. It's nice to meet you, etc. Or somebody will introduce you, Governor Walker. Here's so and so. This is, you know, she's Russian or whatever. And and people will say, can I get a photograph? So he poses for a photograph with her. Now, the way the Journal Sentinel reported that yesterday, a shameful headline, you know, Scott Walker meets with, you know, Russia now indicted, etc. Well, he didn't meet with her. He met her. When, as I was discussing yesterday, when you meet with somebody, you are taking a meeting. She came up, and apparently he was introduced to her. They had a brief conversation. They took a picture, and then he went on to probably take pictures with another 1,000 people. So it wasn't a meeting with. The follow-up story today, Scott Walker has not been contacted by FBI over interactions with Russia, campaign says. Um, of course, the, the, the Walker campaign, they're saying, look, we, we don't know this woman from Adam. And he never met with her, contrary to the headline in the Journal Sentinel. She had a picture taken with him, came up, he was introduced to her. Boom, That that's the extent of their contacts. Nothing to see here. 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right, is this a story? The fact that Governor Walker is at the NRA convention among Hundreds of people who come up and are introduced to him or introduce themselves to him and take pictures with him. 
One turns out to be this woman who was apparently now alleged to be working on behest of the Russians. Is this a complete nothing burger of a story or is there something nefarious here? 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. 1218 Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 1220, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ, so very glad to have you with us. It was a party 26 years in the making. WTMJ, that's us, is excited to announce our first ever Brewers Classic broadcast. We're celebrating the 10-year anniversary of the Milwaukee Brewers' dramatic 2008 win against the Chicago Cubs, securing the team's first playoff appearance since 1982. That's Brewers Classic. This evening at 6 o'clock, sponsored by Associated Bank, U.S. Cellular, West Bend, the Silver Lining, and Woodman's Food Markets. I admit that there's there's some stories that just make my head explode. And this, as I always say, if, if the news media, doesn't want to be accused of promoting fake news, then they shouldn't promote fake news. And this story about Governor Walker and the alleged Russian spy is the epitome of fake news. Just tuning in, story is back in 2015. Walker is at the NRA National Convention along with, what, five, ten thousand of his closest friends. He's thinking about running for president. He's getting ready to give a speech. He's standing in advance and, and he has an opportunity to meet a lot of the attendees. People are coming up. Hi, Governor Walker. Um, let me introduce you to so and so or Governor Walker. I'm so and so. Can I get a picture? They probably took hundreds, maybe thousands of pictures. Turns out one of the people he met was this woman who is subsequently being indicted as someone who was trying to meet conservative politicians with an idea of trying to steer them towards a pro-Russia position. So he, he meets her. They have the picture. It's out there. All right, so now there's the headlines. Rush, uh, Scott Walker met with, you know, Russian under indictment. Well, he didn't meet with her. He, he met her. And now the follow-up story is, well, the Walker campaign, the Walker people say that there, there was no follow-up from the FBI. Of course there wasn't any follow-up from the FBI. This is a complete and total non-story. And it ends up getting frustrated. It's frustrating to me because this is the complete example of the nothing burger. Here's a text. I once had the fortune of meeting Chuck Norris. Does this mean I can now say I met with Chuck Norris? That's exactly the the point. No, you didn't meet with Chuck Norris. You met him. You said, hi, Mr. Norris, I enjoy your movies here. Can I maybe can I get a selfie with you? Can I get a picture? And people end up saying yes all the time. And of course, there was no contact by the FBI because there's absolutely nothing to suggest that there's anything wrong here. And yet this continues to be a two day story. Who knows how much longer it's going to be? Again, if the media gets sick of being labeled with people that promulgate fake news, the answer is simple. Don't promulgate fake news. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, they're starting to roll out the numbers now from the Marquette University Law School poll. We'll do some instant analysis. Stick around. 1223. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 1226, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. John Mercure and Melissa Barkley. Special reporting on Americans' hidden crisis continues as they look at the number of Americans affected by anxiety. They have what you need to know. Be sure to tune in. They've done a fantastic job with that series. I've been listening 4.50 this afternoon on Wisconsin's Afternoon News for the latest installment. All right. The the Marquette University Law School poll, the new one is in. They did one about a month ago. Now they're rolling out the latest results. Um, 
the, the first conclusion, um, what they tend to do is they tend to kind of bury the leads as to, you know, where you are in the head-to-head races. But the, the one takeaway that you're getting from the numbers that they're releasing right now is that almost nobody knows that there is a primary election coming up in four weeks. It, the primary election is four weeks from yesterday. And almost, number one, nobody knows that there is a primary election coming on. And number two, almost nobody has opinions about who any of the candidates are. Um, which is both troubling and an opportunity for candidates if they can try to figure out a way to break through. Now, keep in mind how the primary elections work in Wisconsin. We have what is known as an open primary. You don't have to register as either a Republican or a Democrat. In some states, you got to register by party affiliation. You don't have to do that in Wisconsin. So you can vote in any primary, in any, in, in either primary. The thing is, you can't flip back and forth. So, for example, if you lived in Milwaukee County and you wanted to vote in the Republican Senate primary between Nicholson and Vukmir, you could do that. But then at the same time, you couldn't vote in the Democratic primary for sheriff. Similarly, if you wanted to vote in the Democratic primary for sheriff, you couldn't vote in the uh, Vukmir-Nicholson race. So you have to pick uh, a side. And that was always... um It's always kind of interesting because David Clark kept getting elected by winning a Democratic primary with a heavy Republican crossover. In a year like this, where there is a contested issue higher up on the ballot, he wouldn't have had that crossover. But in any event, um, the the initial numbers that are rolling out, um, let's see, despite the fact that both of them have been campaigning for a long, long time, 69% of all voters and 56% of likely Republican voters don't have an opinion on Kevin Nicholson. For Leah Vukmir, 66% of all voters and 51% of likely Republican voters don't have an opinion about her. 60% or more of all voters have no opinion on each of the eight candidates for the Democratic nomination for governor. Think about that. Six out of ten people have no opinion on any of the eight people that are running for office, um, of those likely to vote in the Democratic primary, 51%, more than one in two, have no opinion of each of the eight candidates, no opinion of anybody that ends up running. Matt Flynn, okay, Tony Evers, who's perhaps the best known, he's the state school superintendent, 60% of voters, 51% of Democratic voters have no opinion of him. Matt Flynn, who's run for pretty much everything and lost, 74% of all voters and 78% of Democratic voters have no opinion. Mike McCabe, he's the guy that ran kind of like the the, the goody-goody um, uh, it's sort of the, the so-called citizens advocacy sort of stuff, the good government type of thing. 84% of all voters and 84% of Democratic voters have no opinion on him. Malin Mitchell, he's the uh, guy with the strange sense of humor. He's the firefighter union guy. 85% of all voters, 82% of Democratic voters, no opinion. Josh Paid, who I don't even know who he is. He's some guy out of Kenosha. 93% of all voters and 95% of Democratic voters have no opinion. Kelda Roy's 89% of all voters and 87% of Democratic voters have no opinion. Paul Soglin, 71% of all voters and 65% have no opinion. It goes on and on. That's the winner in this poll, at least so far. No opinion, undecided, don't care. 
1235 WTMJ. Jeff Wagner, so very glad to have you with us. All right, they're rolling out the numbers in the Marquette University Law School poll. Uh, the primary election is four weeks from yesterday. So people are, to the extent that people are going to participate in the primary, they're starting to focus at least a little bit on it. One of the takeaways is that among the candidates, particularly the Democratic candidates for governor, nobody knows who they are, or at least people don't have an opinion on, on who they are. Large amounts of people who just, I haven't heard of other people or have, don't have any sort of opinion, which I guess is both good and bad four weeks before an election. It's bad because they don't know who you are and don't have an opinion on you. It's good because if you can figure out a way to break through, well, maybe you have an opportunity. All right, here are the numbers. Okay, Gru, should we do the Republican primary or the Democratic primary first? Which do you want to hear first? Do the Democratic primary first. All right, this is the chance they are competing to run against Governor Walker. All right, so there are eight candidates who are running. Um, One of those candidates is going to be extremely pleased with the results of this poll, if you believe the poll, and seven are going to be really bummed out. I won't bury the lead. Tony Evers, who is the state superintendent of schools, who's run for statewide election twice and won, he is way ahead of the field. He is supported by 31% of likely voters. Back in March, he was supported by 18%. In June, it was 25%. Now it's 31%. All right. Now, here's where I think it's really interesting. There are seven other candidates. No other candidate has more than six percent. So it's Evers and then it's everybody else. Nobody has more than six percent. Malin Mitchell, who's the firefighters union guy, who's kind of a kook. He's got six percent. Kathleen Weinhout, who's a legislator from the western part of the state and has no money at all. She's six percent. Matt Flynn, who's the retired lawyer from here, who's run and lost for just about everything there is to run and lose for, he's at 5%. Paul Soglin, the hippy-dippy aging mayor of Madison, he's at 4%. Uh, Mike McCabe, who was the guy that ran the so-called you know good government groups, he's at 3%. Kelda Royce, and now this is interesting because if you – Go into the fever swamp of, of the left. Kelda Royce, who is a former state legislature legislator out of Madison, very, very liberal. She's put a whole bunch of her own money into her campaign. I mean, well over six figures. Um, she's got the support of Emily's List, which is, you know, the national group that puts money in to try to help liberal female candidates. And, and that's been kind of the buzz. Kelda Royce, Kelda Royce. She's going to be the one that's going to come out of all this. She is 3%, 3%. She's in seventh place out of eight candidates. And that's where she was essentially a month ago when they polled. If you believe this poll, she is getting no traction at all. And the, the last guy who's the lawyer paid out, who I don't even know who he is, he's a lawyer out of uh, Kenosha, he's got 0%. He's at zero, it, zero. So Evers, 31%, Mitchell, 6%, Vinehouse, 6%, Flynn, 5%, Soglin, 4%, McCabe, 3%, um, Roy's, 3%, and the last guy, nothing. Again, you have to view these numbers with some degree of skepticism. It is sort of a fluid race. But, I mean, my takeaway, you know, Tony Evers, big winner here because he appears to be the only candidate that is distancing himself. And the truth of the matter is, 
if that number is even close to correct, when you're talking about an eight-way primary, even with the one guy getting 0% of support, you can win that election with, you know, 28, 30, 31% of the vote. I mean, that's when it's spread out like that. And Evers does have apparently a core of support, if you believe these numbers. Big losers here, um, I think Matt Flynn, Mike McCabe, and particularly this Kelda Royce, who, like I say, has been touted as the, the great liberal hope. And at least so far, she's not getting any traction at all. She's got more money on hand than other candidates because she put a boatload of her own money into the race. But at this point in time, you know, is there an opportunity to break through? Can you either get people to go away from supporting Tony Evers if you believe these numbers um, from the other candidates. I uh, don't know, but Tony Evers, clearly the big winner in this poll if you believe those poll numbers. All right, let's turn to the Republicans. And and what they, they didn't do a head-to-head with any of these candidates and Scott Walker. So they, they said they'll do that next month. There's no, there's no head-to-head. Um, all right, so let's turn to the Republican primary, the... Big winner, big winner, State Senator Leah Vukmir, um, who was on our program yesterday. Um, it is a very, very close race. The polls are within the margin of error. But in the current Marquette University Law School poll, to the extent you believe it, and I know I'm repeating that, but you have to throw this in, Vukmir has 34% of the vote. Nicholson has 32% of the vote within the margin of error, but Vukmir is ahead. Now, that is significant, I think, because this is the first time in this poll Vukmir has been in the lead. In March, when they did a head-to-head poll, Nicholson had 28%, Vukmir had 19%. Last month, June, when they did this poll, Nicholson had 37%, Vukmir had 32%. So Nicholson was ahead by 5 and in this poll, a month later, if you believe the numbers, Vukmir has gained two percentage points. She's up to 34%. Nicholson has dropped five points from 37% to 32%. So for the first time, Vukmir now is leading Nicholson. And if you just look at the numbers, plus two, down five, there's been a seven-point swing. Again, these numbers are within the margin of error, so you need to um, take them with a significant grain of salt. But at the same time, um, it's it's a positive. It shows, to the extent you believe these, it shows that the Vukmir numbers are, are moving in the right direction. But as with the Democratic primary, there's an enormous amount of people who are undecided. And um, again, much of this is going to depend on, on turnout for an election that's going to be held in the second week of August. So th- those are the numbers, the horse races that if you... Believe these numbers, the two big takeaways in these two races, Tony Evers dominating the Democratic primary field and Leah Vukmir moving in the right direction and now leading, admittedly, within the margin of error. All right. Um, let's see some of the other numbers that are out there. Uh, Governor Walker's job rating. And you, you always want to when, when you're looking at an incumbent. You, you want to look, I think, at, at two numbers beyond just, you know, a head-to-head thing. And they, they didn't do a head-to-head with all the Democratic candidates. But they, they did do 
first of all, a, a job approval. Do you approve of the job the governor is doing? And for the second poll in a row, Governor Walker is what we call above water. His job approval rating is higher than the people who disapprove. Walker's job rating, 47% approval, 45% disapproval. Um, last month, it was 49-47, so it's the same margin. Um, but the bottom line is, and the takeaway is, for the second month in a row, more people approve of the job that he's doing than disapprove. That is a good sign for an incumbent politician. In addition, and this is another number that you look at, um, you always ask, is the, how do you feel about the, the way the state is headed? They call that the right track, wrong track question. Are you on the right track? Are you, you know, are, are we doing something really wrong? Um, positive numbers are, are good for incumbents. 52% of Wisconsin voters say the state is headed in the right direction. 42% say it is on the wrong track. That's no change from the June poll. So that's pretty much unchanged. But again, a, a decent size gap. More than one in two Wisconsin voters think the state is moving in the right direction. That is, generally speaking, a good sign for incumbents, regardless of what their party is. So Walker's approval rating, 47 approved, 45% disapproved. Tammy Baldwin's uh, job rating, a slight tick up. Um, approval rating 41%, 40% unfavorable. So, you know, but a positive thing, uh, in June, it was 41% favorable, 43% unfavorable. In March, it was 37% favorable, 39% unfavorable. So it's been in that, that range one way or the other, but this is the first time in the last several months that Baldwin's approval rating has overtaken her unfavorable rating. I think my guess would be part of that is due for the fact that you know she's been she's made a substantial TV buy, a lot of Tammy Baldwin ads talking about how she understands the common person and stuff like that. My guess is that's showing up a little bit in that if you believe these numbers. So um, good news for Walker, I would say good news for Baldwin, good news for Leah Vukmir, great news for Tony Evers, everybody else not so much. Twelve forty five, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 1248, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. All right. I, I think most people, unless you have completely and totally imbibed the Donald Trump Kool-Aid, most people would agree that the president's performance at that news conference two days ago was, was not one of his finest moments. I think he came across as weak. I think he came across as, well, I mean, there's no question. In many of his remarks, he appeared to be siding with you know, Russian dictator Vladimir Putin over U.S. intelligence agencies and, I mean, and kind of turning his back on, on NATO. Now, I, I think he came across very soft and to the point that you almost had this unprecedented thing yesterday where he, he's trying to walk back some of the stuff that he said, including this sort of bizarre thing where he said, well, I looked at the transcript and I, 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 I said I, I – I said would when I shouldn't have said wouldn't or, or vice versa. And so I, I do, I mean, I understand why there might be some confusion. Well, all right, of course, none of that, none of that dealt with, you know, any of the other things. I mean, he didn't explain 
why he had retreated half a dozen times and sat on television for two interviews since the Putin news conference um, and hadn't corrected his remarks. He didn't reverse other statements where he gave credence to Putin's uh, denial of Russian involvement. Um, it, it was, I think, a very, very weak performance by the president. I know maybe some people would disagree, but um, you just saw the reaction from the Republicans, and, and that tells you how much trouble that, that the president's remarks caused. All right, so I, it was not President Trump's finest moment. No question about that at all. However, the left goes absolutely nuts. Over the last 48 hours, I've been cataloging some of the stuff which is said. You have people including people in Congress who are saying they believe the president's press conference two days ago was the equivalent of this generation's 9-11 or the equivalent of this generation's Pearl Harbor. You have people saying and throwing around the word treason. I mean, treason, which is, of course, not just an impeachable offense, but it is a crime. I understand how it was not President Trump's finest moment. And I, I understand how him walking back or trying to walk back some of his stuff leaves a lot of us unsatisfied with how he's done it. But treason, 9-11, Pearl Harbor, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. Have we gone over the bend when it comes to reaction to some of the stuff President Trump does. And I guess let's just lay this out there. You heard what he said. Is it treasonous? Is it this generation's night? Is it the equivalent of September 11th? Is it the equivalent of Pearl Harbor? Or do the people who throw around these terms demonstrate a shocking historical ignorance 414-799-1620 that is the accurate mortgage talk and text line i am a critic of the president when it comes to what he's been doing over the course of the last week i thought that was a disastrous press conference with vladimir putin two days ago treason 9-11 pearl harbor give me a break 414-799-1620 was it as bad as some of the trump critics want to make out or is this a legitimate example of Trump derangement syndrome? Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's twelve fifty two. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Twelve fifty five. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Former Watergate prosecutor. Her name is uh, Jill Wine Banks. Goes on NBC and MSNBC yesterday and says that President Trump's performance at the news conference will live in infamy as much as Pearl Harbor, the Pearl Harbor attack, or Kristallnacht, which is, that's the evening in 1938 when Nazis marched through towns in Germany and Austria, destroying Jewish businesses, synagogues, and homes. I mean, go to extremes much? Larry in Brookfield. Larry, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hey. Hi, Larry. Thanks for having me on the program. Sure. Uh, uh, my thought is, uh, it's not treasonous. What he did is bad, and it was certainly throwing our uh, intelligence community under the bus. But as far as comparing it to Pearl Harbor and 9-11, that is absolutely disrespecting and insulting all of those who died during those two events. Well, it is. I I mean, and it it shows either 
the degree of of, of the, the Trump derangement syndrome has has reached, or just an incredible historical ignorance. No, thanks for the caller. That that's it. But I'm, okay, here, let me give you an indication of some of the texts I'm getting. President Trump is unfit to lead our nation. We, the people, have been compromised as a whole. President Trump should be removed from office, and a new election should be held using paper ballots. Um. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I, again, it, this is the nature of, again, how unhinged people would be or how they have become. While it's another text, while Trump should be held to account for style and policy, it needs to be by fair evaluation, not this exasperating nonsense. Yeah, that look, I understand why people are critical of the president. I'm critical of the president when he does things that I think deserve criticism. And I think clearly, you know, his performance two days ago was uh, a, a criticism worthy performance. But seriously, nine eleven, Mike in Milwaukee. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Yeah, Jeff, uh, I was just thinking a uh, quick thought. I I agree, uh, 9-11 and Pearl Harbor are quite a stretch, but to me it struck me more like uh, Munich 1938. Uh, I can imagine people in the Baltic republics and uh, Poland are probably feeling pretty nervous with flashbacks to 38 and 39. Uh, one of these days we may wake up and find the Russian army in uh, Lithuania or Latvia, and then what are we going to do? Well, I do think it is fair. And now there's some other interviews he's apparently given that question whether or not the, the U.S. views an obligation to defend some of the smaller European states that are out there. And I, I think that's, I, I mean, I'm not sure I'm even willing to go to Munich, but I think it is fair to say, um, you know, what, what's going on with NATO? Are we committed to NATO? Is he committed to NATO? And I, I think that's fair. Now, thanks to God. I mean, and again, I, these are all sorts of questions that need to be answered, and they're fair questions to ask the president. But, but really, okay, let's see. Here's a text. Because the left has blown minor gaffes out of proportion in the past, when something happens that requires a substantial reaction, they have no more room on the aghast scale. I wonder what they will do if he were to make another gaffe. They are already melting down. What could the next level possibly be for them? And again, I, I think this is one of the things that you are seeing with the, the whole idea of the resistance summer. You know, we're, we're going to find people who work for Trump. We're going to find those Republicans. We're going to confront them in public. We're going to scream at them. Well, all right, that might make you feel good, and it might appeal to your own particular tribe. But I think most people look at it and say, hey, th- this is kind of an overreaction. This is not how we want to behave. And we remember 9-11. Um, we, we remember 9-11, and this press conference wasn't 9-11. When we come back, we're going to dip into the whole Josh Hader incident. I've got a number of, I think, provocative, provocative questions, so stick around. It's 1259. 109, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Eric, before you go away, okay, let's, we've got the classic broadcast from 2008 coming up. Let's go back 10 years further into the Wayback Machine. Do you remember John Rocker? Did that name oh, yeah, bell the, for you? Oh, yeah, the Braves closer. Right. Grew. Do you remember, you don't, John Rock? ah, how quickly they forget. All right. John Rocker was a flame-throwing left-handed reliever who pitched for, at the time he pitched for Atlanta Braves. That's where he experienced his greatest stardom. In 1999, the Braves were in a playoff game against the New York Mets. So he's a closer. He's out in the bullpen. And New York is noticeable at the time. I don't know if it's like this now. But at the time, it's... um, 
New York fans notably hard. So he's out he's out in the bullpen and people are throwing stuff at him. I mean he's he's the star closer. Beer bottles, people are screaming at him, they're they're throwing all sorts of stuff at him. This is during the playoffs. And and he goes off you know, during the playoffs about what a terrible place New York is, how he hates to play in New York, all all that type of stuff. All right? So that's in October. In December, this would be December of, I've got the story in front of me, in December of um, 99, he decides that he's going to do an interview with Sports Illustrated. Now, John Rocker is, is kind of a, I forget kind of, at the time, he was a, I, I would describe him as sort of an out-of-control redneck. So he, he sits down with a Sports Illustrated writer, and i got the story in front of me, and he, he's driving around in his pickup truck, and they're talking about how he's honking at people and yelling, stupid, you know, whatever, and making obscene gestures and stuff. And then he starts talking about New York. All right? So here is what he says. They, they ask him about, um, you know, how do you feel about New York? And this is what he says. Uh, they said, would you ever consider playing for a New York team? I would retire first. It's the most hectic, nerve-wracking city. Imagine having to take the number seven train to the ballpark, looking like you're riding through Beirut next to some kid with purple hair, next to some, and he uses an offensive slang word for gay people, with AIDS, next to some dude who just got out of jail for the fourth time, next to some 20-year-old mom with four kids. It's depressing. He tells that to the Sports Illustrated person, and they print it. On New York City itself, this is what Rocker says. The biggest thing I don't like about New York are the foreigners. I'm not a very big fan of foreigners. You can walk an entire block in Times Square and not hear anybody speaking English. Asians and Koreans and Vietnamese and Indians and Russians and Spanish people and everything up there. How the blank did they get into this country? Okay. That give, and this is, I mean, he's telling this in this interview. So that, and it, it goes downhill from there, but that just gives you a little bit of an idea as as to what this guy says. Now, I mean, he's playing in the major leagues at the time that he says this. Um, as a result of this, Bud Selig, Bud Selig was the commissioner, and um, he said that believing that John Rocker had dishonored Major League Baseball by disparaging many groups in society with his harsh comments in the interview, he suspended the Braves he suspended Rocker for 73 days, marking the first time a baseball player had been disciplined for speech. Selig said that Rocker could not participate in spring training with the Braves, a 45-day period, and could not play during the first 28 days of the season. The commissioner also fined him $20,000 and ordered him to undergo sensitivity training. He was 25 at the time. All right, now, so this this is 1999. So we're talking about 20 years ago. Now, I bring this up. Because Milwaukee Brewer All-Star Josh Hader finds himself in the news. It's been something that everybody has been discussing. Let me kind of back into this, because I, I think many of you know the story. And I'll tell you my interaction with, with Hader. Every opening day for the last however many years, I, I do the, the opening day broadcast last couple of years with Steve Scafidi. But they put me in the dugout. And so I, I have an opportunity to interview the various players, and the way it works is I get a list of the players, and, and several of them I have interviewed, you know, we, we've over the years, and sometimes it's the first time I meet him. And what happens is, a few minutes before their scheduled interview time, somebody from the PR department brings the guy out to me, and, and typically during one of our breaks, I get a chance to talk to him for a few minutes. And I, I've said this before, and I mean this. I, I this is not. 
from my perspective as a fan or a homer or whatever, I collectively, I like these Brewer players. I mean, the ones I have met, nice young men, glad to be where they are. They are a pleasure to interview. They're respectful. They're just, they're just nice. Well, I could, I could give you one or two exceptions in all the years, but in general, that is my overall reaction. Josh Hader was a guest on the opening day show, and they, they brought him in. I was actually, he wasn't on the opening day roster last year, so I didn't get a chance to talk to him. So I was looking forward to it, because this is a great pitcher. Brought the guy out, and, you know, we, we started talking beforehand. Um, he's an interesting character, because he's from Southern Maryland. And as it turns out, my, my mom was from Southern Maryland, and I, I think, if I've got the geography right, I think they grew up in, like, adjacent counties. But Maryland is an interesting place. You have the part of Maryland that's around Washington, D.C., which is very, very liberal and very, very beltway. And then you've got Baltimore, which is extremely urban. We were talking about Baltimore the other day. Highest crime rate, you know, the crime rate is through the roof. And then you have southern Maryland, the area around Annapolis. And this is the area where my, my mom grew up. And it is extremely rural, I, I guess, is how I would describe it. Um, you know, my, my great uncle and great aunt, they, they lived in a little house on the um, Chesapeake Bay and hunting and fishing. And that's kind of the way of life. It, it's really like three different states all kind of rolled into one. Hader is from Southern Maryland, and he's kind of a good old boy. That was how I, it, it's, he struck me. Nice young man, um, very polite, very respectful. Um, interesting guy. Like we were talking about, hey, what do you like to do? He likes to hunt. He likes to fish. That that's the guy he is. So I I like Josh Hader. I thought he was a nice. I think he is and a nice guy. All right. Well, everybody knows the story right now. Right as he's getting ready to go into the All Star game to pitch, somebody who's apparently been sitting on these tweets from years ago, six seven year old tweets that he sent out when he was in high school. Before he was drafted. So he's 16 and he's 17 years old. And the tweets contain some racist and some homophobic sayings. All right. Things that he put on that he sent out six or seven years ago. Somebody who clearly is looking for exposure and has the axe to grind decides to release it yesterday as as he's getting ready to go into the game. And I believe the person made sure to tag some big national sports writers, so they make sure that this gets the attention it gets. And then, of course, all you know what breaks loose with these various tweets. Major League Baseball has now weighed in on, and, and as soon as this comes out, um, Hader, he's, he apologizes. He says, look, this was, this was when I was a kid. This was years, this was when I was in high school. I apologize. Um, this doesn't represent who I was, you know, who I am now. Um, this is some of the stupid stuff. You know, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing now, but this is stuff I said. It's no excuse that I was young, but I'm sorry it doesn't reflect who I am now. Major League Baseball has decided not to fine him, not to suspend him, but rather to say you're going to have to go through some sensitivity training. All right. There's a number of different aspects of this I want to discuss, but let's start out with the fundamental question of did Major League Baseball get it right 20 years ago? They suspended John Rocker, hit him with a big-time fine for things that he said about New York fans and New York City in general that were racist, that were homophobic, that were xenophobic, go on and on and on. All right, did Major League Baseball get it right? Let's start with this, and then we're going to move into a couple things. But Josh Hader, 
He's going to have sensitivity training, but as far as discipline goes, that's it. Did they get it right? 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I have a strong opinion on this. I will share it with you, but I'm curious as to how you think. Is this the right way to handle it? Do you need more severe punishment? Is the hater situation different than the rocker situation? Does the fact that it happened seven years ago make a difference? Your reaction. 414-799-1620. If you're on the line, please hold on. 119, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 121, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Let's start with Tom in Waukesha. Hi, Tom. Hey, Jeff. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Sure. First of all, I have no tolerance for these type comments. Right. Uh, I'm a high school teacher and coach. I work with young men, boys, men from 14 to 18. Uh, but again, no tolerance right. for these type of comments. But what Hader did when he was 17 is different than what Rocker did. I think that's very different. Rocker yeah, when he was Rocker 20, Rocker was 25, and he was pitching for the Atlanta Braves. Right, and he's being interviewed, and he, he knew where his comments were going, and that's a huge problem. But uh, what Hader did was very wrong, but it was also when he was a stupid kid, and mm-hmm. we were all stupid kids at one point. Well, you know, Tom, not, I, I not was saying that to... I, I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I, I grew up before in the era before Al Gore invented the Internet. And I, I got to tell you, I, I am so glad that we, we didn't have all the social media stuff. And, and, and look, I, I don't think I would have used I don't think I've ever used like the racist stuff at all. But I, you think back to all the stupid things that you you might have said or I said oh, yeah. and, and and you oh, say yeah. them to your buddies and and yeah. th- then it's just it. And then but now nowadays you go on the social media and it's not just saying it to your buddies. You're saying it to the whole world and it's out there forever. I mean, it's scary almost. It is, and that's why I, as a teacher, I stay away from that. And anything I put on my Facebook is as, right, you know, generic and vanilla, and as you know, well, God bless America as possible. Well, you know, Tom, I will tell you. I mean, the first thing that I thought of when when I heard this story breaking last night is, I mean, I think in some respects it is perhaps a teachable moment for coaches like you and parents. To, to whistle in some of these kids and say, look what can happen here. You know, maybe you think you're being funny. Maybe, you know, you you just don't realize these ramifications. But this crap that you say, look at what's happening to this guy and look at what he's going through. Maybe you want to think before you just start putting this stuff out there on the Internet. We have our summer practices for football this week, and we're talking about these things and how we're going to be as far as treating each other during the season. But right. Right, this will be a real easy thing for us to bring up again today. And <laughs> right, no, exactly. Most, no. most most kids will adhere to it, but you know, right. Well, there's some knuckleheads. Well, that that's and thanks. See, that's that's what this kind of strikes me. I, I mean, this this to me, and I'm not. I, I'm like with you, Tom. Thanks for the call. I, I'm not defending these remarks. The, the remarks are indefensible. But you've got some 17 year old knucklehead kid in rural Maryland who is. My guess is he's sending these tweets to people that he thinks are friends or, or whatever, and, and he's being a stupid 17-year-old. And clearly now, now he's living with this stuff, and it's going to come back to haunt him, and this is you know, going to haunt him. But the, the, the operative thing, again, for everybody out there is that this is the world that we live in. And, and maybe, maybe when you were 17, you, know, you were inclined to say something stupid and nasty about I don't know, boys or girls or whatever, 
Well, this is this is the example of how this can, in fact, haunt you because now it's out there forever. I think Major League Baseball got it right. I, I agree with Tom. I think there is there's a distinction between if Hader did the same thing now, all right, same exact tweets now, I think the punishment would probably be different. He wasn't in Major League Baseball. He wasn't even Minor League Baseball. He hadn't been drafted. This is something stupid that a 17-year-old does and I, I think to fine him, to suspend him would have been an overreach. He's also going to have to live with the consequences of this because I, I suspect for the foreseeable future, now maybe this is going to blow over at some time, but for the foreseeable future, every time he goes into a rival city, you know it's going to be unpleasant. But I think baseball got it right. Karen in Illinois, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi, Jeff. Thank you for taking my call. Yes, ma'am. Um, there is a reason that the phrase young and foolish exists. <laughs> young and stupid, yeah. <laughs> um, if, if I, if my late parents, God rest their souls, had known some of the things I said and did when I was 17 or 18 or maybe even 19, mm-hmm. they'd cringe. Yeah. And they, because the things I was doing was in direct opposition to the way they had raised me and the values they had given me. Um, I think, I don't know that I think he needs sensitivity training. I think a far better consequence would be to ask him to go in and address junior high and high school assemblies about the dangers of posting on the Internet because Mm -hmm. he's an athlete that they admire. As a parent, you can talk and talk until you're blue in the face. Yeah. And remember the whole Mark Twain thing. You know, when I was 18, I figured my father was the stupidest man. And by the time I turned 21, I was amazed at how <laughs> much smarter he had yeah. gotten. Yeah, that, no, there, there, thanks. I mean, there's no question. And I, see, I don't want to get texts from people saying that I am downplaying the significance of, of the stuff that he said. I, I'm not. But I, I do think at some point in time there's a statute of limitations on bad behavior, especially stupid behavior. And and this to me is this to me is an example of some seven, immature sixteen or seventeen year old who I don't know if he thinks he's being clever. I don't know if this is the way his different friends talk. I don't know what's in his heart. But but it's it's coming back to bite him. And, and I think it, it's I think Major League Baseball has to do something. I don't know if he needs the sensitivity training or, or not, but I, I think you have to do something. You have to make a statement. But uh, given the age of this incident, I, I think this is the appropriate penalty. I, I do. 414-799-1620. Tell you what, let's take a quick break. We'll be back with more of your calls in just a moment. The, the other question that, that comes from this is not just the appropriateness of the penalties, but the, the, does Hader come back from this? I, I mean, is this... Is this the type of thing? Um, is, is this something that, that cripples you? Can you get past this, or is this going to define his career moving forward? Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. We continue the conversation in just a moment. It's one twenty eight. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. One thirty seven. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Number of people are texting saying, "How exactly did this all come up?" And and let me review the bid in just a little bit. Um, Josh Hader's been you know in the major leagues since the early part of last year. He's you know one of the rising stars in the game. These tweets have been out there presumably for six or seven years, which does raise a question: um, what, Why did nobody in Hader's camp? Where is his agent? If if I were an agent for a sports player, professional, 
um, one of the first things I do is I'd be saying, hey, give me the access to all your social media accounts. And I'd be going back and looking at them. And to the extent that you can delete them, I, I would be deleting them. You know, I, I said, do you realize what you have out there? But but I digress. In, in any event, so this has been out there for a while. Presumably someone, and we don't, I don't know who, um, was sitting on these. And then during the game, I believe it was when he got called in to, to pitch, that's what happened. At that point in time, whoever had this sends this out, you know, posts these things, and then tags a number of prominent baseball writers across the country <clears throat> to make sure that this story gets traction. So clearly, there was somebody who had access to this information who was waiting for just the right time to use it to try to, again, destroy the kid's career. And, and that that's... That that's I mean my take on this. If I'm wrong with the facts of how it got disseminated, I'll I'll be willing to acknowledge it. But I clearly there was somebody that had been sitting on this for a long time, and and I mean I guess you know it is fair to say why wasn't this stuff deleted over the years? But this was his registered uh, Twitter account four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. Does he survive? Jason and Sheboygan. Jason, you're on WTMJ. Well, I'd like to say first of all, oh good afternoon, and uh, he. Uh, Handle the great. I'm going to be the only one that says this, but I don't think he does. And here's why. When you're a reliever in baseball, you have a different psyche about you. And uh, I truly, when I first heard about this yesterday, it reminded me of John Rocker. Now, I know John Rocker was 29-30 and he was 17. I know the, the difference. Right. But I'm just saying is the same kind of thing. And then when he goes on the road, I, I just don't think it's going to, it's going to work, and I, I do feel bad. I, I he's a man the way he handled it, but thank goodness there wasn't social media back in the days of Brett Favre and Chimura and Frankie Winters when they went up north. So he's not a bad person, but I'm just I don't think it's going to work out well. Well, yeah, you think just because of the way he's going to be viewed by fans and the reception he's going to get, and just the the added pressure that this correct. is going to put the on added him. Pressure, correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I think I mean that that's clearly. I mean, clearly he is, at least for the foreseeable future, going to be viewed differently by fans. I, I think, and, and again, it's I'm, I'm a I'm a true Brewer fan, Brewer fan. So, uh, but I, I think, I think overall throughout Major League Baseball up until yesterday, Josh Hader has been viewed as one of these success stories. Here's this interesting that this rising star he's almost unhittable look at the motion that he has he's got the long hair all that type of stuff he, he's a unique character and i think in general he's been viewed as as a as a good positive story this clearly fairly or not changes the way people look at him you know moving forward and i think you know you raise an interesting question i hope he comes through this i, I do and and I think part of it is going to depend, and he's getting support from his teammates. Uh, Lorenzo Kane, who is, of course, African American, you know, he gave a, a strong interview, you know, after the game, saying, "Hey, we, this this was young, it was stupid, you know, we we know who this, we know who Hater is, and you know, I've got no problem with him." Jesus Aguiar is out with saying essentially the, the same thing. So, I mean, I think it gets the impression his teammates are in fact rallying around him, and, and that's going to be that's it's going to be a strong point. Clearly, you know, when he, when he goes on the road, though, when you're sitting out in that bullpen and you've got all the leather lung, loudmouth fans that are hanging around screaming down at you, you know, this is going to be a test of his psyche. And you hope you hope he's strong enough 
to come through, you know, this well. Because, like I say, he's an interesting, I found him to be an interesting and a polite and a nice guy. Um, and I just, I hope he's able to come through this. The big takeaway, though, again, and with the risk of repeating myself, the big takeaway is it is a different world that is out there now. And stuff that you think is clever and cute, and some of the stuff he tweeted that, that's being labeled as racist, I consider it to be racist, but it's lyrics and rap songs. That That's some of the things, not all, but that's some of the things that he was, was tweeting. And again, this goes to my larger premise of, you know, I, I think the language in a lot of these songs is, you know, is inherently racist in and of itself. But that's not all of the things. I mean, he, you know, he sends out a, a tweet, KKK, another one, I hate gay people. I don't know. What would that be about? White power, laugh out loud. You know, you just, I, I think this is, again, the lesson. And if maybe, maybe people don't believe this, but if I had a teenager that this would be one of the conversations, especially if that teenager was a Brewers fan or a sports fan, I'd be sitting down with them today saying, all right, look, you've got this phone, you've got this Twitter stuff, you might think this stuff is clever or cute or whatever, but you want to see how this can come back and bite you in the you-know-what, that this is it. And again, like I say, I think for all of us, maybe not, you know, not hopefully not the racist stuff or all, but think back on some of the stupid things that you may have said to your friends when you were 14 or 15 or 16 or 17. And if I think most of us, if most of us were honest, if most of us were honest, we're probably glad that there wasn't social media back then so that, you know, that stuff is now just buried in the dustbin of history as opposed to sitting out there waiting to be accessed by somebody who clearly, I think, ended up having an axe to grind. I hope Josh Hader comes back from this, but it's... It's going to be, I think, a longer road than maybe some people think. 143, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 146, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. All right, Monday night, last Monday evening, um, my wife was off of work, and so we went out to dinner, went to a, a local pizza restaurant with two other couples and another friend of ours. And so what happens is when we go out to dinner with these other couples, um, it's just, it's kind of the tradition. Everybody, everybody gets separate checks. That's just the way that, that we do it. Um, and so it was the three couples. And then we had another friend of ours came along and I said, Hey, I'm going to buy dinner. So at the end of the meal, they bring three checks, one for Fran and I and our friend Colleen and one for each of the two other couples. All right. Um, one of the other couples, um, John and Mary, they pay with a credit card. I, I pay with cash and I, so I, I pull out the cash. And then our, our, our other couple, our friends Dale and Maggie, that they're going to pay with cash as well. Um, but, but they have, uh, for, and, and I forget exactly how this happened, but he, he being Dale had some change. And so, you know, he's looking for, okay, well, here's the bill and what's the tip going to be. And he, he didn't have the, the right amount of bills, but he had a couple dollars. I, I think it was like in quarters and stuff. So, let, let, let's say the bill, I don't know, let's say it's 30 bucks and, you know, you're going to tip, you know, $5, $6, whatever. Um, he, he gave included in, included in the, the bill and the tip was a couple bucks and quarters and, and that, that he happened to have. So he put that out there. And matter of fact, he actually apologized to the service. I'm sorry I'm giving you change, but this is, I'm, and he said, no problem. It spends just the same. Well, I was thinking about that 
as I came across this story, and this is what I want to discuss with you. There, there's a young man, um, and he he works at a country kitchen. You know, country kitchen is like a Denny's or something. Yeah, country kitchen is like a Denny's, and he's a I think he's a he's a busser. I think is what he does at this country kitchen. So what he does is he gets, you know, he's a server. So he gets, he gets tips, right? That's one of the, and, and a lot of times he's tipped and change. So he decides he wants to take some of his friends out to a meal at this restaurant called Beer 88 in Lynchburg, Virginia. So he takes them out and this restaurant, it's kind of like a TGI Fridays or an Applebee's or something like that. So they go out and they eat. He's 17 years old. The bill, is 45 bucks. So he has, because he gets lots of tips and there's lots of change, he pays for the bill, $45, and he decides he's going to leave a $10 tip. So, I mean, you know, he, he's tipping, you know, better than 20%. So he pays for it with mostly coins. He has a $25, a $20 bill and he has like $35 in like quarters and stuff. He pays for it with cash but the cash is 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 um is change all right now why am i telling you this because the restaurant beer 88 posts a picture of this on facebook the caption says so that they post a picture of of the 20 dollar bill and the coins and the captions and the caption says we'll just caption this how not to pay at a restaurant because that's the nicest thing we can think of to say about this ridiculousness that the 17 year old kid paid for the bill with, with coins. Well, okay. Once they see this, a couple of the kids' friends, you know, they end up going nuts about this. They say, what do you mean? Then this is, they, we can't believe the restaurant posted a complaint on Facebook that we paid for this, that our, our friend took us out and, and used change. To, to pay for this. And he wasn't trying to make a point. This isn't like you show up at City Hall to pay your property taxes with 10,000 pennies. This was, hey, he, he works as a server. This is how the, the he had the money. And, and yeah, so he paid for this. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right. Did the kid do something wrong? The restaurant seems to think that, well, this is how you don't pay at a restaurant. It's the nicest thing we can think to say about this ridiculousness. Was it right to call this young man out? They didn't call him by name out, but they called the practice out. Was the kid, the 17-year-old, wrong to pay for the meal, leave a decent tip using the $20 bill and change that he had accumulated? 414-799-1620, did the restaurant have a right to be upset about this? We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 151, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 154, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Also, the, the, the post when the restaurant went after the, the practice, that there was hashtag no home training. And again, I don't, I don't get the impression. The kid wasn't trying to make a statement. Again, it's not like somebody shows up at City Hall because you don't like your property taxes and they've got 50,000 pennies to pay the property tax. And this was, he, he works as a server as a country kitchen. This is how he had gotten the money. So this is what he uses to pay for the meal that he took his friends to. And he, he did, I mean, he, he left a better than 20% tip. 414-799-1620. Let's start with Kristen in Menominee Falls. Hi, Kristen. Hi, I can't believe this is your topic. It is so funny because this almost a very similar thing happened to me when I was a college student. 
Um, I was working at Turner's across from the Bradley Center sure. during a during a Bucks rush, and um, somebody tipped me. Now it wasn't a generous tip; it was a dollar. Right. But they tipped it all in pennies, and it was spread out over the whole table. Okay. So I was slammed. And to pick up a hundred pennies takes a really long time. So I guess my point is how, how did the guy leave it? Did he leave it spread out and, and all over the table or was it in a nice pile? Cause that makes a big difference. I, well, I think it was, it also wasn't a hundred pennies. It was, it was mostly quarters from what I understand, but it was some nickels and dimes as well. But it was, it, it did add up to the right amount. Um, I don't think, I mean, in your case, Kristen, it sounds like, it sounds like whoever was leaving you that tip was trying to jerk you around. I don't get the yeah. sense that this kid was trying to jerk anybody around. It's just because this is how he had gotten it as a server, and so he was passing it on. Yeah, I do think, though, you know, servers, time is money, and I it probably did take that person a long time to pick that up. And mm-hmm. I don't think that he necessarily meant to do it, but... It is a little bit inconsiderate in the service industry to leave such. And then also the other thing you have to think about is those servers carry their tips in pockets. So mm-hmm. now someone has to carry that for the rest of the night in their pockets. Yeah, That's but at the terrible. same time, these were tips he had gotten too. <laughs> you know, he. I mean, this is yeah. this is how he had been tipped at the country kitchen. So, so he's so just passing he on. He should know better. He should know better. Okay, thanks <laughs> for calling, Chris, and I appreciate yeah. it. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. Now, again, I, I was saying, look, if this was somebody. I don't get the sense that this kid was trying to make a statement or trying to make trying for have trying to be difficult. I just think, hey, this is how he got his money. Is this is how he was tipped? So he's just kind of passing it on. Kristen says, well, it is inconsiderate. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. Let's talk to Brian in Appleton. Brian, hello. Hey, Hi, Brian. How you doing? I think I think it's kind of funny. I don't think he was jerking anybody around. He was just not thinking. Kind of lazy. Maybe you should have went and cashed them in for some dollar bills. <laughs> right. You know, now I think the restaurant kind of, and it is legal tender. Yeah. So. Well, well. also, you know, I mean, I, I mean, don't, I, I, I was going to ask this rhetorically, but I know the answer. Restaurants pay, you know, if somebody use a, uses a credit card, they pay a percentage to the credit card company, whatever that might be. In this case, at least he's paying cash. You know? yeah, so they didn't, to, they didn't have to pay that merchant fee. So now... And the other thing, too, I wanted to touch on is, isn't the restaurant kind of leaning on the hypocritical side? Well, they should put up signs saying, well, don't tip our employees Bitcoins. <laughs> well, well, right. Well, And actually, like I say, I mean, he wasn't even, you know, this might be a different situation if he had if he had stiffed the waiter or the waitress or whatever, but he didn't. He left a, I mean, he left a better than 20% tip, yeah, you know. Really good, yeah. Right, no, thank you. So I guess I, that's kind of, kind of how I'm looking at it. Was was it a little bit inconvenient? Yeah, but would you know, would would you put a fate? Would you go to the trouble of putting a Facebook post out there, kind of mocking it, saying no home training, indicating that there's something wrong with his upbringing? I I think actually, I mean, he he left a nice tip. My guess is, if you said to most servers, here's the choice: Would you rather have a twenty percent tip that comes to you in quarters, or would you rather have no tip at all? My guess is most servers would say, I'm I'm going with the twenty percent. John and Slinger. John, you're on WTMJ. Hi, thanks for having me. Hi, John. Um, so you got a 17-year-old that's working, most likely because he has to. Right. Uh, he's not getting paid much. He's getting tipped and changed. Um, when you accumulate change, a lot of banks will not take quarters and change them out anymore. Yes. If you don't have a bank account. So we don't know his background. So that being said, if you go to a change machine, they will 
skim off a little bit and charge you to take your quarters or your change. So for someone who is maybe making ends meet or needs the money to be giving a lot of that away just to get cash, I think is asking a lot. And I think he did a good thing by you know, leaving an ample tip. Yeah, right. Th- thanks for calling. Again, that, that's kind of how I look at it. He, he didn't stiff the waiter, didn't stiff the waitress, paid his bill, had a $20 bill and the rest of the stuff. I, I mean, is it a little bit inconvenient? Might it be a little bit annoying? Yeah. But this restaurant, I think, completely, totally wrong in making this an issue. It's 159. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Stick around. A lot of great stuff coming up in the 2 o'clock hour. 209. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So, Scott Warris, Trouble in Paradise. Did I hear you say that, okay, Manny Machado is um, Baltimore Orioles all-star shortstop He's going to be a free agent at the end of the year. Baltimore doesn't have the money to re-sign him, so he's going to be a free agent. They're looking to trade him to get as much as they possibly can. The Brewers, the Phillies, other teams have been involved. The word for the better part of the week has been the deal is done. He's going to Los Angeles. He's going to be in Milwaukee because the Dodgers play in Milwaukee on Friday, but he's going to be in the Dodgers uniform. That might not be happening now, huh? Yeah, this is a tweet uh, within the hour by Steve Phillips. He used to work for ESPN, used to be the general manager of the New York Mets. Now he works for uh, the sports network out in, in Canada, also has a, a satellite radio show. Anyway, Steve Phillips says, possible snag and Machado deal to Dodgers. Sources indicate that one or more of prospects coming to the Orioles have some issues in their physicals. Surprise, surprise, may open door for other clubs. Stay tuned. I can't find uh, the quote-unquote baseball experts out there like Phillips and others. I can't find anybody else reporting this. If anything else, they're just retweeting what Phillips is saying. But, you know, it's interesting because we've been hearing for the better part of, well, all day, that this trade is on the well, verge of for the last couple days, actually. Right, I mean, right. for the last couple days, it's been out there that, that the Dodgers have got it. And, you know, just to your point, the other interesting thing has been, I, and I've been kind of following this as a Brewers fan, um, and I'm not sure the Brewers should give too much to get him, but that's a whole other story. But I, I haven't heard the player. I mean, I, I'm following these like tweets too, and you're not seeing the the names of the players that the Dodgers are pre- presumably offering, except for like one one player, one pitcher, I guess. But it's I'll, not just that. I'll throw this in as well. Bob Nightingale, another longtime respected uh, MLB writer, said yesterday that the Brewers were considered the second strongest by the Orioles officials before they chose the Dodgers in the package for Machado. So, join me on the grassy knoll, won't you? If the Brewers, if Nightingale's if they, right, well, if, if, they, if they were the, the second best offering, and now at the 11th hour, although the trade deadline's at the end of the month, but you want to get Machado as soon as possible. Right. Now, if there's a snag with the team that was just a little bit better than your offer, now does he... Make the call to David Stearns? Hmm. Right, or, or do you have, if you've got, okay, one of the players you're bringing over has got an arm problem or has problem with their back or whatever, um, then you have, to, you have to go back to the drawing board and say, okay, well, we're not taking Warris. You know, he's, yeah. got a, he's got that bad rotator cuff. You know, give us Gru. Well, we don't want to give you Gru, you know, or whatever. So, interesting. Okay, do you, all right, let us, well, I don't. Come on, we're already on the knoll. Come on, Jeff. Well, no, no, no. I mean, it's, see, say? I'm. I'm not convinced that the Brewers should give too much oh, for the guy anyhow. Right. That's the other story. You know, I mean, it, would he be a great player? Would you love to have him for two months? Yeah. But certainly you don't want to sacrifice your future because, I mean, I'm, I'm a huge Brewers fan, but do the, does he make the difference in winning the World Series? I don't know. That's that's the question at the crux of your particular debate. Is the bat of Manny Machado the difference between a World Series title and not getting to the World Series? And if you say, yes, that's the difference, well, then maybe you got to go for it. If not... 
maybe that's where you pump the brakes. Right, exactly. And I guess that's my, I, I just, I don't know that he's, in my mind, I don't know that he makes the difference. Do, are the Brewers having a great year? Yes. Should they get to the playoffs? Yes. Are they going to, are they a better team than New York? Are they a better team than Houston? That's a whole different story, and, and that comes from the perspective of a Brewers fan. But the bottom line is stay tuned. It's always fun. What a break this has been. We still have a couple days yet before they take the field again. Well, <laughs> and from a PR perspective, and, and you mentioned this off the air, so I'll give you credit for it. Um, given the whole Josh Hader thing that is going on, wouldn't the Brewers like to have a press conference tomorrow where they announce, hey, we've signed Manny, we've got Manny Machado coming over? That does kind of turn the page on, on the hater thing. A little bit, a little bit. It's, it's fun to think about. Um, we'll keep you posted. All right. Scott Warris, handling sports. Okay. A lot of stuff I want to discuss. Oh, I, I also, all right. I promised somebody last year that I was going to do this, and I am a man of my word. For, okay, this weekend, Port Washington, Fish Day. It's the world's largest one-day outdoor fish fry. Saturday, July twenty-first. I am going to go to it, and here, here's why this is somewhat of a big deal. It was uh, over over twenty years ago. I went to Port Washington Fish Days. I went late in the afternoon, and I had never seen more drunken people at one spot in my life. And, and I, for years, I was telling this story. And, and I had all these organizers calling up and saying, Jeff, you really need to give it another chance. It, it's, it's different. Whatever it was like when you went in the mid nineties, it is not like that now. And I said, you know what? I, I think you're right. And I started talking to all these people. I know all these people who are organizers. They work really hard. They said, yeah, maybe it was like that 25 years ago, but you really should come back because now it's family oriented. It's just a lot of fun. And I said, you know, you are absolutely right. So I'm going to stop making fun of that. I'm going to, I'm putting aside that experience I had. I mean, if you think about some of the stuff you did 20 years ago or places you went completely different, Port Washington Fish Day is this Saturday. I've got a lot of stuff that I got to take care of on Saturday, but I am going to make a point of swinging by Port Fish Day in Port Washington, which is this Saturday because, um, again, I, I've, I've made fun of it for a long time. I think I have been unfair for the last Oh, 10 or 15 years. Not that my comments were inaccurate about the mid-90s, but I think I have been unfair, and I always pride myself on trying to be a fair guy. So, Port Washington. Now, Gru, have you ever been to Port Fish Day? You want to know, is Fran making me say all this? No, no, uh-uh, not at all. No, no, it's it's actually the organizers. who are A bunch of people who are listeners. No, 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 not at all. And I, but it was. It, it was kind of like, okay, you know, I, I started because I used to make fun of it. And and I know there's a lot of people that work really hard, and I know a lot of the organizers and stuff, and they, they say, really, you should give this another chance. It's different than it was, and it's a great community event, and I'm taking them to the work because I know a lot of people have a lot of fun, so I'm going to check that out. So I... I I don't want to say I take back all the mocking I've done over the years, but I, I'm willing to acknowledge that I was probably unfair, at least, you know, not giving it another chance a long time ago. So this Saturday, I am going to be there. All right. Let's talk about, I, I want to tell you about something that happened the other day to me, and then we're going to use it to expand into a discussion of something they are considering doing in Racine. Stick around. It's 215 Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Two eighteen, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Okay, the other day I, I was assigned the task of going to um, one of my sisters in law for a wedding gift. She she's an artist and she she did a painting um, that's 
I'm going to be going up in the house. And we, we had to have it framed. And so my wife dropped it off at this place. And uh, my assignment was go pick it up. She actually, I think she even paid to have it framed. All I had to do was go pick it up. So where, where the store where she dropped it, um, was in one of the area communities and, um, they have parking meters there. It, you know, it's in, in the, in the little, the little town. They have, they have parking meters, little village. They have, they have, t- they have parking meters. And I pull up at the parking meter. And I'm, it's one of those deals where I'm going to be running in for five minutes. And so do you feed the parking meter or do you not feed the parking meter? Now, my decision was made more complex because I didn't have any change in the car. Normally, I have you know a bunch of change in the little tray, but I had just emptied out all the change. So I had no change. And I'm at the parking meter, and I decide... Oh, to heck with it, or words like to that effect. I'm going to just take my chances. So I, I ran in. But as I'm doing this, I'm thinking, if I come back, and it, it really, it was five minutes, run in. Hi, I'm here to pick up a painting. This is my last name. Fine. In that five minutes, I'm thinking, you know, if I get a parking ticket, I'm never shopping in this community again. And, and again, I, I, I would have deserved it. It wasn't like, you know, ignorance of the law. No, I, I knew I made that conscious decision. But if I had gotten a 25 or $30 parking ticket, I was never coming back into that community. Because, uh, again, even though, uh, you know, even though it is what it is, I, I just, you know, I would feel like I was being ripped off. Well, the end of the story is um, I was in and out in five minutes. I did not get a parking ticket. So I will continue to shop in this particular community. Now, I was thinking of this story, though, because down in Racine, they are thinking of removing all the parking meters in downtown Racine. And what they're going to do instead is they're considering going to angle parking. So first of all, they take out all the parking meters. And then in downtown Racine, they go to angle parking. And what they do is the plan would be to put in, uh, you know, to put signs up saying, two-hour limit or three-hour limit or whatever. So you, you stop the people from taking up all the parking spaces by parking all day. But you make it more customer-friendly by saying, okay, you're not going to have to feed a meter to run in to have lunch. You're not going to have to feed a meter if you're just going to run in and, and pick up you know, a framed painting or something like that. This is, And they're also saying, well, Kenosha has done this. You know, Kenosha doesn't have parking meters. Kenosha has done the exact same thing. They have signs that say two hours. You still have a traffic enforcement person who goes around and maybe marks tires or watches things, but you don't have the parking meters. They acknowledge that if you do this, you're going to lose revenue from, you know, issuing tickets. They, they, they acknowledge that. But at the same time, they think it's going to be a lot more customer friendly. And if they do this, it might be a boon to the area merchants. Now, again, this isn't like pulling out all the parking restrictions, but it is saying, all right, no parking meters, and, you know, you can stay a couple hours, and we will, they'll mark your tires and stuff, and if you overstay that, you could still get a ticket, but if you're one of those people that wants to run into the restaurant for lunch, or you want to run into the grocery store, or you want to run into the jewelry store, or you want to run into the frame store, you're not going to get nickeled and dimed, and if you you know don't feed the meter, you're not going to come out to have a thirty dollar ticket. Racine is considering doing this. Our number four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Should they do this, and should other communities around here 
that have the parking meters in their downtown, should they pull them out and then, you know, do something else? Would this make you more inclined to patronize the businesses or will this be abused? 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I'll give you a hint. I think this is an absolutely tremendous idea. I think parking meters deter people from shopping in particular areas. And I think the fact that, you know, you go in, you get, you know, you, you run into a place, you don't feed the meter, no excuse, or you stay a little bit longer than the hour or the half hour, and you come out and you find you've got a $20 or $25 or $30 ticket, I think that's so customer-unfriendly, it chases people away. Should they pull out the parking meters? 414-799-1620. We discuss in just a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 224. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 226, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Racine is considering pulling out all the parking meters downtown. The idea is they'll go to angle parking. They'll put up a sign that say you can't park there for longer than two hours, and they will have parking enforcement two or three hours. But the idea is it will be more business friendly. Um, they estimate that the city brings in about $400,000 in revenue for parking meters. That would be the money that people put in the meters, I think, and also the tickets that, that they generate. So they'd lose that. But at the same time, the question is, does this deter area residents from shopping there? Let's start with Terry in Kenosha. Hi, Terry. Uh, hi, good afternoon. What do you think? Uh, well, I'm thinking my, uh, my parents have moved uh, to the Kenosha downtown area, uh, and they have seen, you know, growth that uh, Kenosha has been doing, and I would say that you know, Racine, in following that, would be probably the best thing to do. Uh, there are many people that you know, enjoy just going downtown, business people, you know, retirees, and they enjoy spending the afternoon down in Kenosha and not having to worry about uh, you know, having to go feed the meters. Yeah. I think Racine should follow along. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I, I think for all these communities, you're trying to revitalize downtowns and I mean, the reality is parking is one of the things that I, I think is a limitation. People say, oh, I'm not going to be able to pay, find, a, pay, find a parking spot. Or if I go to a restaurant and I, I'm there for an hour and 10 minutes and, you know, am I going to come out to find a $35 parking ticket? And maybe it doesn't work in a place like Milwaukee where they depend so much on parking revenue. But I would have to think that this would be a huge boost to downtown Racine's economy. And, and isn't that what it's all about? Right, maybe the revenue lost in the meters would be gained in the sales tax. Well, I, I, absolutely. Thanks, thanks for calling. Right, or or promoting business growth in in the overall downtown area. Here's a text I have. We received a twenty dollar fine for backing into a parking spot in a lacrosse parking ramp. I contacted the mayor, who basically said rules are rules. We were so angry, we vowed to never spend another dime in his city. So, yes, parking meters and ridiculous fines do deter customers. That's uh, from Alicia in, in Shawano. See, I I think that that's that's the case. I mean, I just I try to personalize this, and the reality is when there's all sorts of places. There's all sorts of places. Let's say you're looking to go to a jewelry store, all right? There, there's all sorts of great jewelry stores that, that are around. And let's say you don't have a particular relationship with one jeweler or one jewelry store. You're just like, I, I, I need this, and, and you all oh, you've heard the ads or whatever. You sit there and you think, all right, 
This jewelry store, well, it's easy access. I'm not going to have to fight parking. I'm not going to have to worry if I get a ticket. Or, gee, you know, if I park it here, um, am I going to be able to find a spot? If I park it there and I stay a little bit too longer, I'm going to have to run out and feed the meter. I think parking is one of those things that drives those decisions. Now, the Racine Common Council is going to be deciding on this, but I, I candidly, I think for all the communities in our listening area, Again, the city of Milwaukee might be different, but all these other communities that are trying to figure out ways to compete, I think get rid of the parking meters. That is a good start. It makes it customer friendly. It makes it business friendly. And at the end of the day, isn't that what we want? 234, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Okay, earlier in the program, we talked about the, the latest Marquette University Law School poll, which came out. About two hours ago, uh, the primary, the Democrat primary to see who's going to advance to run against Scott Walker is four weeks from yesterday. And and again, I always do these caveats. I, I'm not sure how much you could trust the polls. But the clear winner in the poll so far, Tony Evers, who has won two statewide uh, elections, state superintendent schools, he's got 31 percent of the vote. None of the other seven candidates has more than six percent of the vote. Malin Mitchell has 6%. Um, I think Matt Flynn has 5%. I had the numbers in front of me. I don't right now. But but nobody has more than 6%. So um, Evers is way, way, way ahead. And candidly, if it's true, I mean, 31% might be enough with an eight-way primary, might be enough to, to win. The candidate who is running seventh, and I mentioned this, and who I think clearly is the big loser in this, is a woman named Kelda Royce. She is a, a former state representative from from Madison, and it's been interesting. She has 3% of the vote. She is second last. There's this guy out of Kenosha that nobody's heard of who gets 0%, but she's got 3%. Out, she's running second last out of eight candidates. She got the endorsement at the Democratic State Convention, but no traction at all, if you believe these poll numbers. And, and hers, her name has been thrown around in like elite Madison circles. Oh, this is the, this is going to be, you know, the, the, the lefty candidate. And it's just great. She's a woman. She's going to have all, she's getting no traction, if you believe these polls. Well, all right. Earlier this week, the candidates were respond, were required under law to come out with their fundraising numbers. Um, and, and fundraising is one of the ways that you test the strength of a, can, a campaign. And again, it's not that the person who has the most money is necessarily going to win, but you need enough money to get your message out. Plus, if you're trying to convince people that you are a legitimate candidate, well, part of that is fundraising. So you want to show numbers. And that's why at the end of every reporting period, once it gets close, and if you've ever given to political candidates, you know this, you start to get impassioned pleas from the campaigns or the candidates saying, hey, our next finance report is due you know, June 30th or whatever, you know, we, we need to have this money in by June 30th. If you were thinking of giving, we could really use it now because we need to show strength, et cetera, et cetera. All right. So you want to get this headline saying that, you know, you are leading the fundraising pack. And this Kelda Roy's, she got those headlines earlier this week. I mean, I'm looking at some Kelda Roy's leading in the fundraising thing. Well, all right. Now, there is a disconnect. Because, yeah, she got the headline. She's raising all this money. But the disconnect is that she's got 3% of the vote. She's running 7th out of 8th. So what's what's going on here? Well, it gets even more interesting. 
Um, apparently what happened, she, she reported having $668,000 in cash on hand as of June 30th, which is about a quarter million dollars more than her closest rival. So she got the headline. She's got a lot more money. Um, and you, if you would read that, at least that headline, you think, oh my gosh, th- this campaign must really be gaining traction and all. Well, here's the asterisk behind it. Um, yes, she has this money, but what's happening is apparently much of the money that she has raised has come from her own money. Um, she's raised about $677,000 in the first half of the year. Um, since getting into the race, she's put almost $354,000 of her own money into the campaign. All right, so groove. Now you're starting to. She's, so it's it's this it. Well, okay, you might say, well, Jeff, what's the big deal about that? Because rich people always do that. I mean, Herb Cole. You know, Herb Cole self financed essentially. You could give money to Herb Cole, but you know he paid for his own campaign. So there's no secret about that. But Kelderoy's isn't isn't a rich person, and what is now being reported by multiple sources, Fox Six, Dan Bice. Here's apparently what happened. This is how Fox 6 writes it. Dane County property records. The Democratic candidate for governor, Kelda Royce, took out a $235,000 second mortgage on her Madison home June 25th, five days before loaning her campaign $255,000 to boast her quarterly fundraising numbers. All right, so it appears now the campaign won't say what, but but won't say exactly what happened. But it certainly looks from the outside that she took out a two hundred thirty-five thousand dollars second mortgage on her home, um, and then turned around and loaned her used the proceeds from that second mortgage to loan her campaign two hundred fifty-five thousand dollars. Here's where it gets even more interesting. According to the records, she already had a $392,500 mortgage on the home before taking out the second mortgage. Now, first of all, that must be a pretty nice house that she's living in if, you know, if you can pull, you know, over $620,000 in equity out of it. But she's got a home that is heavily mortgaged. It appears that she takes a second mortgage on the home and then turns around and loans it to her campaign right before the reporting deadline to create the impression that she is raising more money than she actually has. And, and yes, it's it's true that now she has more cash on hand than any of her rivals, but it's because she's taken out a second mortgage on her house to do that. So here here is my and there's, there's nothing illegal with anything. It does it does appear that she was I think kind of trying to flim-flam the media to an extent. There's nothing illegal with what she did. But, uh, again, you're trying to get that headline. She has the most money, and they got the headline, but they got the headline by taking out a second mortgage on the house. All right, so here, I, I mean, sure, Kelderoy's isn't going to take advice from me, but 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 here's my advice as to somebody who's been around politics for, you know, a couple decades now. All right, you are polling at 3%. You are seventh out of eighth. You are 28 points behind the guy who is ahead. All right? 
at this point in time, four weeks ahead of the election, if you take that, if you really have mortgaged your personal house to the hilt so that you can buy TV ads to run for governor, my advice is, are you nuts? <laughs> Here's what you should do. You've got the headlines, Ms. Royce. Now that you've got the headlines, immediately what you should do, don't be tempted to spend that that house on on these ads because you're behind by 28 points. $235,000 isn't going to buy you enough TV and radio advertising to cover that gap. <laughs> Take that money. You've already got the headlines that you raised the most, most cash. If I were here, what, her, what I would be doing today is instructing my treasurer to Take that money that's sitting in the cash on hand and write me a check for $235,000. Pay that loan back instead of taking out a second mortgage on your house. You're not going to win the election. $250 more thousand dollars out of your personal account isn't going to make a difference on this, and you're going to be in debt forever. I mean, at some point in time, you just kind of have to recognize that maybe this isn't the time. And I, I, I do admit that when I saw those numbers, I, I was wondering where the dough was coming from because I didn't think that any of the people left in the campaign were necessarily, I mean, independently wealthy. I'm not saying there's people that probably aren't well off. Matt Flynn's been a highly successful lawyer for you know most of his career, so my guess is he's doing fine. But Flynn's only put, like, I think, a hundred grand of his own money into the account. We're not talking about anybody, I think, who has access to millions of dollars. It appears, again, the campaign's not confirming it, but it appears they took a substantial second mortgage out on a personal residence to inflate these numbers. That's that, I think, is dumb. If you go ahead and blow that money on TV ads, that's just crazy. 243, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 246, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us. Uh, it was a party, 26 years in the making. We are excited to announce our first-ever Brewers Classic broadcast. We're celebrating the 10-year anniversary of the Milwaukee Brewers' dramatic 2008 win against the Chicago Cubs, securing the team's first playoff appearance since 1982. That's Brewers Classic. It is tonight at 6 o'clock, sponsored by Associated Bank, U.S. Cellular, West Bend, the Silver Lining, and Woodman's Foods. All right. I, I, I want to end the mystery here because I have been asked, being asked by a number of of people about whether in connection with state fair, whether we are, uh, whether we are doing our cream puff giveaway again. Now for years and years, I, I was the guy that, that did this. Um, we would go out to state fair park and back in the day grew, this is before you were here. We used to, it, it was always a, a cream puff giveaway, but we used to, we used to make it really hard to, to get the six pack of cream puffs. You had to send us an email. And then we would select emails, and we would send people coupons. And then you had to come out the morning of the day before State Fair, and you had to give us the coupons. So we're always for different hoops. And I remember I was saying, we're, we're making this too tough on people. So what we did is, together with our friends you know, at the State Fair, we, we changed the rules. And we simply said, all right, here's the deal. Show up at a given time. And the first X number of people are going to get a six-pack of cream puffs. We made it really easy. And I did this for years and years. And then um, last year, I was doing the morning shift, 
And I think two years ago, I was filling in for Charlie on the morning shift, so I couldn't go out there. But I would, I would haul my chunky butt out of bed, out of bed at like four in the morning and, and go out and, and I would get to State Fair Park around, I don't know, like 5.30, and there would be all these cars lined up through the parking lot in front of the uh, ice center, and then down 84th Street. And I'd go, all these people are out there, and I, I used to have just a blast do- at doing it. So I have not, I haven't done it the last two years. Um, but people, I think, remember me from doing it, and it's great. I mean, I'll stand in line, I'll give you the six-pack of cream puffs, and people have been saying, are you going to do this? Well, I have an announcement. We have just, we have just made it public today that... Yes, we are doing it again, and it, it's going to be perhaps even cooler this year because we are partnering with our sister station, WKTI Country. So here's the deal. WTMJ and WKTI Country are fired up to share the greatest dessert in Wisconsin. Karen D'Alessandro, who is, of course, on our sister station, and I, we are both going to be handing out six packs of those famous cream puffs to the first 300 cars lined up in the Wisconsin State Fair parking lot. This would be the one in front of the, the Pettit Center. Um, starting at 6 a.m. the day before the State Fair, Wednesday, August 1st. So that is two weeks from today. It is the Cream Puff Palooza. So stop by for your chance to win. First 300 people get a six-pack of Cream Puffs. People in the past have started lining up. Oh, I, 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 I'll go to talk to them when I get there, which is not at three o'clock in the morning. When I get there, I'll go and talk to some of the folks and I'll say, what time did you get here? And they say, well, we got up at three. We've been here since four. And I'll say, well, it is a six pack of cream, but, but it's, it's great. I mean, some people take them home and eat them. Some people take them to work. Some people show up with coolers. Doesn't matter what you do. First 300 people, two weeks from today, we start at six o'clock, um, in the state fair parking lot in front of the, uh, Pettit Ice Center. They get a they get a six pack of cream puffs, and of course that leads into the Wisconsin State Fair that starts the next day. I will be broadcasting many of the weekdays, not all of the weekdays, but many of the weekdays. I'm off that Friday because I'm going to go to Canton, Ohio, watch Jerry Kramer get admitted into the Hall of Fame. So kind of looking forward to that. But um, it's two weeks from today. Cream puff a palooza. So for everybody who's been wondering, are they going to do it again? Are they going to do it again? Um, you bet that we're going to do it again. Governor Tommy Thompson, former Governor Tommy Thompson, in the news today making a very interesting point. The primary election, like we say, four weeks from yesterday. And people, he, as you might recall, here's a guy who won election and then re-election three times as the governor of Wisconsin, and none of them were really even that close. Well, he decided after taking an exit, taking a hiatus from politics, he decided to get back in. He ran in the U.S. Senate race. He ultimately it was a four-way primary, very, very contested. And what happened was you had the four Republican candidates who pretty much spent all their money. And so Governor Thompson, and he's always going to be Governor Thompson to me, Tommy won the primary but just his campaign had no money, and so they were off the air for the better part of a month. Tammy Baldwin was running ads right and left because she had no challenger in the Democratic primary, essentially. And, and so it, she created just a gap that Governor Thompson was never able to overcome. Now, that was the year that Barack Obama won re-election as well, so it, it was a Democrat year. Would he have been able to win under the best of circumstances? I don't know. But he had no money. He was off the air, and I think that killed him. He's in the news with some... Interesting advice to the Republican candidates, something that I 
I think people should should heed. I understand that there's going to be a, a tough Republican race. You had Kevin Nicholson. You've got Leah Vukmir. The poll numbers are out today. They show it essentially as a dead heat. Vukmir with 34%, Nicholson with 32%. Um, Vukmir up a bit from the previous month, Nicholson down, but a very close and contentious race. You're starting to see some of these outside groups come in and spend money running attack ads on behalf of one candidate against the other candidate. And, you know, Tommy Thompson, you know, he's talking about this because this happened to him. Journal Sentinel reporting that um, while he hasn't endorsed anybody, he's, well, the way they write it is he condemned the National Club for Growth that are running ads, including $2 million in new ad buys, most of which is negative ads targeted at Leah Vukmir. Now, Leah Vukmir, there's a, a political action committee that's supporting her, that is running negative ads against uh, Kevin Nicholson. But, you know, Thompson points out that what happened, the National Club for Growth, they came in, they ran all sorts of attack ads against me in 2012. I won, but, you know, I had to spend all my money fighting these things off. And then after I won, the, the National Club for Growth abandoned Wisconsin. They never offered any help to my campaign in the general election, which gave Tammy Baldwin a huge cash advantage. So the governor's message is, if you've got these political action committees and these special interest groups that are interested in playing in Wisconsin politics and trying to elect conservatives, maybe instead of spending millions of dollars going after the two conservatives who are running, Maybe you want to save your powder and, and wait till whoever comes out of the primary comes out of the primary and then concentrate on what the real prize would be, which is beating Tammy Baldwin. Now, is anybody at these political action committees going to listen to that? No, but I think Governor Thompson makes a very good point. All right, when we come back, we're going to find out what John McCure and Melissa Barkley have on their minds on Wisconsin's Afternoon News. Stick around. It's 254. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ.